we are just halfway through the year, and back in January, we laid out a vision for the year, a theme for the year, Love Your Neighbor. And on that particular Sunday, Vision Sunday, I laid out for you the basic plan that God had placed on our hearts and and how the year would unfold and how at particular points in the year we would do things like what we did a week ago Sunday. I want to just be able for a moment now to rehearse a few things for you because it's easy for a church... To get into the mindset and into the flow, one week is another week is another week is another week. As I've mentioned many times to you, it's easy for a church to become like a Christian conference that you go to once a week. You enjoy the singing, you enjoy the camaraderie, you enjoy the the teaching, and and then you go your way and, and you come back the next week and you do it again. But in between that time, It's everybody going their separate ways, and there's no connectivity. There's no congregational line. And so when we we talk about the church, we need to understand our purpose as a church. Our purpose as a church can be summed up under the adage, the great commandment and the great commission. Now, it sounds like two purposes, the great commandment and the great commission, but really it's a single purpose, like two sides to the same coin. Because a church doesn't just make up its purpose for existence. It's not like every church just determines, what is my purpose? No, the word of God lays out for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ why she exists. And the Lord Jesus was asked by a Scribe, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Out of, out of all the Bible, their Bible, our Old Testament, which is our Bible as well, what's the, the single most important commandment? And Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor. It's not some imposition that is pushed down from a a white-headed 60-year-old pastor. It comes from the lips of Jesus himself. As Jesus got ready to ascend to heaven, he was gathered with hundreds of disciples, followers, in the, in the province of Galilee. And Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. A great commandment and a great commission. When you you turn to the book of Acts, you see how the Spirit-filled church in Jerusalem began to live that out. You see how the post-Pentecost church in Jerusalem began to follow the the mandate of the Lord. Uh, A a succinct summary is Acts 2.42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so when we talk about a a church vision, our vision for this year is love your neighbor. But when people talk about vision, there's a, a lot of different definitions you could use. There's a lot of different ideas about what a church vision 
is. Uh, We gave you at the very beginning of this year a a handout, a, a booklet that articulated much of this for you. But let me just remind you of how we are using the idea of a church vision. A church vision is the clear articulation of their envisioned future. With the perp- while the purposes of the church never change, vision statements change as God's leading for a particular congregation changes. We don't have the right to change the purpose for which we exist. Jesus has established the purpose of the church in the word of God. A church vision is looking at who we are and sensing the direction and the Spirit of God leading us to strengthen ourselves congregationally in a particular area, in a particular way, with a particular focus. So, love your neighbor is our desire to follow Jesus more fully by growing as a congregation in the area of personal evangelism. Can you think of any area in the Christian life that it is more difficult for a believer to be obedient in, uh, to be more Christ-like in than, than personal evangelism? And so our vision this year is love your neighbor. It comes from the lips of Jesus himself. And that's what makes it so powerful. That's what makes it so important. Because it's easy for churches to be about buildings and budgets, crowds and coins, nickels and noses. And and that's what people often think the church is about, budgets and buildings, crowds and coins, nickels and noses. But when you say we love our neighbor, we actually want to engage our city, our community, our neighborhood with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus left us a mandate. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to ask you if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. In Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, we have a very powerful statement by the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, many people think it is the the climactic statement in the gospel of Luke. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save those who are lost. Jesus could not have put it any more clearly, any more definitively any more succinctly, any more powerfully why he came. He came. He came to be the God-man so that he could seek and save those who are lost. And that included every person because every person is born a sinner by birth and a sinner by choice. And Jesus came to seek and to save. Uh, We could take that statement by itself and we could spend a significant amount of time talking about it and and tying it to our vision as a a means of motivating and encouraging and inspiring what we're trying to do congregationally this year. But if we were to do that, we would miss something of its power, something of its nuance, something of the potential that resides in that particular phrase because that particular phrase is the culmination of a series of stories that find that phrase as its punctuation mark. 
that phrase becomes an exclamation at the end of a series of stories that, that tell us that Jesus truly is the Son of Man who came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, I would ask you very quickly as we run through these stories to turn back to Luke chapter 18 with me. In Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9, we have a parable of Jesus. It's a parable about two men, two types of people that went up to the temple to pray. In verse 9, we learn the purpose of the parable. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So the parable is to be a form of rebuke. It's a rebuke against the self-righteous who are condescending and demeaning and depreciatory of others. It's those who hold their religion up as a banner to bash others with. So two men go up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. And we hear the Pharisee first pray, but interestingly enough, he prays only to himself. Look in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. God doesn't listen to the self-righteous prayers of arrogant, condescending people. He turns his ears away. And those prayers are heard only by the one that's praying them. He prayed to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You don't know how good you have it, God, to have somebody like me on your side. I don't do any of the bad things, and I do all the right things. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, you take those two prayers and you contrast them, and it's a stark contrast, a, a striking contrast. One is filled with self-righteousness and the other with humble repentance. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified. To be justified is to be forgiven and, and counted righteous. The tax collector, the publican, uh, the man that was the outsider went home forgiven and counted righteous. But the other man, he goes home condemned. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And then he tells a story about children. And when most of us read the story about the children, we don't connect it to the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee. But Luke is putting these stories together because he's moving us toward a desired end. He's moving us toward an exclamation point. He's moving us toward a dramatic conclusion. These stories aren't unrelated. These stories are intricately connected. And so the Pharisees, you're familiar with this story. Not the Pharisees, the, the disciples try to keep the children at bay. Jesus doesn't have time for children. He's a busy man. He's on a mission. He's building a kingdom. But in verse 10, Jesus called for them, saying, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So the children and those like children are a part of the kingdom of God. In fact, he says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Notice he, he talks about in verse 17, receiving the kingdom. 
He talks about entering the kingdom. He's talking about coming to Christ in faith like a child, believing, trusting, dependent. People like that enter the kingdom of God. People like that receive the kingdom of God. People like that are like the publican that says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Then there's the story of the rich young ruler. We, we don't connect the rich young ruler to the children very often. We don't connect the story of the rich young ruler back to the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, but they are intricately connected. They're closely connected. They're theologically and exegetically connected. So a man, a man with everything but the one thing that really matters comes to Jesus. And he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, we've just read, enter the kingdom and receive the kingdom. And now we have a rich young ruler saying, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And, and Jesus says, you know the commandments. And he, he quotes the second part of the Ten Commandments with the single exception, thou shalt not covet. He does it with intentionality and purpose. And, and he says, the rich young ruler in verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. He sounds so much like the Pharisee. I don't do any of the bad things. I do all the good things. And Jesus says, one thing you still lack. You have everything but the one thing that really matters. So all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me. And the man is very wealthy. It seems unreasonable. It seems too high a price to pay. And so he turns and he walks away. And in verse 24, as he walked away, Jesus is looking at him and you can almost hear the sadness in the Savior's voice, even on the printed page. How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Well, we just talked about receiving the kingdom of God. We just talked about entering the kingdom of God when it came to the children. We just talked about humbling oneself in order to be justified with the publican and the, and the Pharisee. We just said, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He says, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those are stunning words. They're hyperbolic, but hyperbole is intentionally used in order to make a monumental point. He's talking about taking the largest Palestinian animal, a camel, disgusting, smelly, despicable, but large. Take the smallest Palestinian opening, the eye of a needle. It's easier to get that camel through that eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved. The disciples respond appropriately, then who can be saved? If it's easier to take the largest Palestinian animal, a camel, get it through the smallest Palestinian opening, the eye of, an, of a little needle, then who can be saved? And Jesus responds, 
The things that are impossible with people are possible with God in verse 27. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. Permit the children to come unto me. What must I do to inherit eternal life? A rich man asked. The next story is a blind man with 20-20 vision. To be a blind man was to be a beggar, impoverished, to be pitied. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is passing by, but he, he can't see. He doesn't know when he's going to be close by, so he begins to shout out. Look in verse 38, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. They try to shush him, be quiet. He cries out again in verse 39, son of David, have mercy on me. He's not the first person we've heard cry out for mercy. You go all the way back to the story of the publican. The publican, the tax collector said, have mercy on me. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. This man went home justified, Jesus said. So here he is, son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus said, bring him to me. What do you want me to do for you? He says, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus says, your faith has made you well. Literalistically, your faith has saved you. Now, this is an appropriate translation. Your faith has made you well. You are healed physically, but the point is he was also saved spiritually. Healed physically, saved spiritually. Son of David, have mercy on me. They say, pastor, how do we know that he was saved spiritually? Well, you'll notice it says immediately he regained his sight and began following Jesus. If we had time, we'd go back to Mark chapter 1. Jesus went to Peter, Andrew, James, and John by the Sea of Galilee. He said, follow me. They left their nets and followed him. We could go to chapter 2. He walks to a tax collector's booth. He looks square into the eyes of a man known as Matthew Levi. He said, follow me. He got up from the tax collector's booth and he followed him. To follow Jesus is to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this man follows Jesus. And then we come to the story that culminates Matthew 19, 1 through 10, the story of Zacchaeus. You're very familiar with the story. Many of you are familiar with the little children's song about Zacchaeus. We, we learn what's impossible with man is possible with God. God knows how to thread the needle. God knows how to get the camel through the eye of the needle. Then who can be saved if it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to be saved? What's impossible with men, he said, is possible with God. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, the only chief tax collector in the New Testament. There are tax collectors, but he is at the highest rank and level of tax collectors. He would have been despised by his countrymen. He would have been seen as a traitor for collaborating with the Romans in the collection of taxes, and he would have been considered a lying thief because the taxes that were often charged were exorbitant. He would have everything that money could buy in that society and in that, in that world. And yet there's something inside of him that's askew. Something's wrong. Something's broken. And he seems to know it. Jesus is walking through Jericho. 
And Zacchaeus has climbed up to a sycamore tree so that he can catch a glimpse of Jesus. Zacchaeus has never met Jesus. Jesus has never met Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has heard a lot about Jesus, probably. And Jesus has never seen Zacchaeus, but Jesus knows what's going on in Zacchaeus' life. Jesus knows what's going on in this man's heart. And so when he gets to the tree, he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. He scurried down, and he immediately says, if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. If I give half my possessions to the poor. If Zacchaeus teaches us anything, he teaches us about the power of repentance, genuine, authentic repentance. Think about the rich young ruler. So all that you have, give to the poor and come follow me. That's what Jesus said to him. He turned and walked away because he was wealthy. Zacchaeus says, half of what I own I give to the poor. If I've defrauded anyone of anything, which he had four times as much without Jesus saying anything to him. Jesus evaluates the situation. And in verse 9, he says, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We never know what's going on in the heart of a person. We have no idea how these gifts might be used by God in the life of a teacher or students or parents at Watterson Elementary. There's a, there appears to be a volcanic eruption going on in this man's soul. What drives a wealthy, distinguished individual to climb a sycamore tree in a thriving village, a village where he's despised and ostracized and, and demeaned behind his back, what drives a man like that to climb a tree? One thing, the work of the Spirit of the living God in the heart of a man. He wants to see Jesus. He wants to get a glimpse of Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. He wants to see Jesus, and Jesus knows him by name. Jesus knows what's going on inside the people that we pray for. Don't give up. Don't quit praying. Don't turn back. Don't quit interceding, investing, and inviting because Jesus works in people's lives, and he doesn't always tell us what he's doing. But we often are privileged to become a part of it. Well, that's why Jesus came, to seek and to save the lost. That's why Jesus said, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That's why we, as, as a congregation, we're trying to do things congregationally. Not in this individualistic Western culture of discipleship where it's all basically about me, my pleasure, my growth, my enjoyment of the music, my enjoyment of, a, of my small group. No, congregationally, we're seeking to march forward under the banner of Christ for the glory of God to obey the command of Christ, love your neighbor as yourself. What should we do? Well, we intercede for people. We invest in relationships. 
And then we invite them maybe to church as a preliminary invitation, but ultimately to Christ. Let me say as a pastor, you're doing a phenomenal job of it. I genuinely, authentically mean that. We had a Good Friday service. It was the largest Good Friday service that we've had in this, in this, in this facility since we've been on this site. It was one of our four big events. Good Friday and, and Easter weekend is a single event. We've got four big events this year to give people opportunity to invite family members and friends. And then the Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday, we had the, the third highest attended Easter services since we've been on this site. The second is Love the Ville. We had somewhere in the neighborhood of 200 people out in that hot July sun serving the Lord and investing in the community by loving people. And we have more who weren't able to be there, who have, who have given, in, given here to Love Watterson, who prayed. You might have had family members in town. You may have been on vacation. And all, those, we take, all of that is under, more than understandable. But you prayed for it. We've got I Love My Church coming up in September. I Love My Church Sunday is an opportunity for us to, to invite people to church who, you, who may not normally come to church. They think we're odd and peculiar. They think we're interested in nickels and noses and budgets and buildings. And it gives us an opportunity to invite them and to, and to, and to engage them. And they, and they learn, you know, this is a, really a warm, kind group of people. Uh, last year was a phenomenally fantastic Sunday for us. And then as we close out the year, our Christmas Eve services. So what should we do? We should intercede. We should invest. And we should invite. I'm going to ask you if you'll stand with me. I'm going to lead us in a in a brief word of prayer. Then Caleb Shaw is going to lead us and we're all going to join and we're going to sing. It may be that at some point while you're singing, you would just stop for a moment and, and ask God to use, use the uh, gifts that we, that we delivered to Watterson Elementary School uh, for his glory and, and to be a, a, a gospel seed. Um, maybe you'll intercede for your, for your one, whoever that, that one may be that you're praying for and investing in and, and uh, hoping to eventually be able to, to invite. Uh, maybe you've been visiting with us and, and you've been thinking, I'm, I've been waiting, I've been thinking about, about joining on and, and maybe you would just come forward today and say, you know, I, I know this isn't a perfect church, got a long way to go, it's got a lot of, uh, a lot of places that can be strengthened. Come and, come and join us if the Lord is uh, working in your heart and help us strengthen, strengthen those those areas, or, or maybe you're like Zacchaeus. Maybe nobody in the world knows what's going on in your soul. I've told you hundreds of times, and I was 19 years of age, I was closing the door and taking a Bible out and reading it at night, and I had no idea what it meant, and I was embarrassed to tell anybody about it. 
but God was working in my soul. Maybe you'd like to just talk to someone about it this morning. If you'll come forward, we're not going to embarrass you or, or uh, do anything that would force you to, to make any kind of decision you're not ready to make. In fact, we won't even leave you languishing up here in some embarrassing way. We'll, we'll just take you out and talk to you privately and confidentially. So would you, would you join me in prayer? Father in heaven, thank you so much that you tell us exactly why our Savior came to seek and to save the lost. Now, we came for other reasons as well. We know that. But today, as we look at these stories, we're reminded in the most powerful of ways that Jesus came after lost people. And we are so grateful that he did because he came looking for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.